Section 27 of The South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa Jevons. The South Pole by Roald Amundsen. Translation by A. G. Carter. Section 27. Volume 2, Chapter 13. The Return to Framheim. Part 1. The going was splendid, and all were in good spirits, so we went along at a great pace. One would almost have thought the dogs knew they were homeward bound. A mild, summer-like wind with a temperature of minus twenty-two degrees Fahrenheit was our last greeting from the pole. When we came to our last camp, where the sledge was left, we stopped and took a few things with us. From this point we came into the line of beacons. Our tracks had already become very indistinct, but thanks to his excellent sight, Bjarland kept in them quite well. The beacons, however, served their purpose so satisfactorily that the tracks were almost superfluous. Although these beacons were not more than about three feet high, they were extremely conspicuous on the level surface. When the sun was on them they shone like electric lighthouses, and when the sun was on the other side they looked so dark in the shadow that one would have taken them for black rocks. We intended in future to travel at night. The advantages of this were many and great. In the first place, we should have the sun behind us, which meant a good deal to our eyes. Going against the sun on a snow surface like this tells fearfully on the eyes, even if one has good snow goggles. But with the sun at one's back, it is only play. Another great advantage, which we did not reap till later, was that it gave us the warmest part of the twenty-four hours in the tent, during which time we had an opportunity of drying wet clothes and so on. This last advantage was, however, a doubtful one, as we shall see in due course. It was a great comfort to turn our backs to the south. The wind, which had nearly always been in this quarter, had often been very painful to our cracked faces. Now we should always have it at our backs, and it would help us on our way, besides giving our faces time to heal. Another thing we were longing for was to come down to the barrier again, so that we could breathe freely. Up here we were seldom able to draw a good long breath. If we only had to say yes, we had to do it in two instalments. The asthmatic condition in which we found ourselves during our six weeks' stay on the plateau was anything but pleasant. We had fixed fifteen geographical miles, seventeen and three-eighths statute miles, as a suitable day's march on the homeward journey. We had, of course, many advantages now as compared with the southward journey, which would have enabled us to do longer marches than this, but we were afraid of overworking the dogs, and possibly using them up before we had gone very far, if we attempted too great a distance daily. It soon proved, however, that we had underestimated our dogs' powers. It only took us five hours to cover the appointed distance, and our rest was therefore a long one. On December the 19th we killed the first dog on the homeward trip. This was Lasse, my own favourite dog. He had worn himself out completely, and was no longer worth anything. He was divided into fifteen portions, as nearly equal as possible, and given to his companions. They had now learnt to set great store by fresh meat, and it is certain that the extra feeds, like this one, that took place from time to time on the way home, had no small share in the remarkably successful result. They seemed to benefit by these meals of fresh meat for several days afterwards, and worked much more easily. December the 20th began with bitter weather, a breeze from the southeast, grey and thick. 
We lost the trail, and for some time had to go by compass. But as usual it suddenly cleared, and once more the plain lay before us, light and warm. Yes, too warm it was. We had to take off everything, nearly, and still the sweat poured off us. It was not for long that we were uncertain of the way. Our excellent beacons did us brilliant service, and one after another they came up on the horizon, flashed and shone, and drew us on to our all-important depot in 88 degrees 25 minutes south. We were now going slightly uphill, but so slight that it was unnoticeable. The hypsometer and barometer, however, were not to be deceived, and both fell in precisely the same degree as they had risen before. Even if we had not exactly noticed the rise, the feeling of it was present. It may perhaps be called imagination, but I certainly thought I could notice the rise by my breathing. Our appetite had increased alarmingly during the last few days. It appeared that we ski-runners evinced a far greater voracity than the drivers. There were days, only a few days be it said, when I believe any of us three, Bjarland, Hassel and myself, would have swallowed pebbles without winking. The drivers never showed such signs of starvation. It has occurred to me that this may possibly have been due to their being able to lean on the sledges as they went along, and thus have a rest and support which we had to do without. It seems little enough simply to rest one's hand on a sledge on the march, but in the long run, day after day, it may perhaps make itself felt. Fortunately we were so well supplied that when this sensation of hunger came over us we could increase our daily rations. On leaving the pole we added to our pemmican ration, with the result that our wild beast appetites soon gave way and shrank to an ordinary good everyday twist. Our daily programme on entering upon the return journey was so arranged that we began to get breakfast ready at 6pm, and by 8pm we were usually quite ready to start the day's march. An hour or so after midnight, the fifteen geographical miles were accomplished, and we could once more put up our tent, cook our food, and seek our rest. But this rest soon became so insufferably long, and then there was the fearful heat, considering the circumstances, which often made us get out of our sleeping-bags and lie with nothing over us. These rests of twelve, fourteen, sometimes as much as sixteen hours, were what most tried our patience during the early part of the return journey. We could see so well that all this rest was unnecessary, but still we kept it up as long as we were on the high ground. Our conversation at this time used to turn very often on the best way of filling up these long, unnecessary waits. That day, December the 20th, Per, good, faithful, conscientious Per, broke down utterly, and had to be taken on the sledge the last part of the way. On arrival at the camping-ground he had his reward. A little blow of the back of the axe was enough for him. Without making a sound, the worn-out animal collapsed. In him Visting lost one of his best dogs. He was a curious animal, always went about quietly and peaceably, and never took part in the other's battles. From his looks and behaviour one would have judged him, quite mistakenly, to be a queer sort of beast who was good for nothing but when he was in harness he showed what he could do. Without needing any shouts or cuts of the whip, he put himself into it from morning to night, and was priceless as a draught-dog. But, like others of the same character, he could not keep it going any longer. He collapsed, was killed, and eaten. Christmas Eve was rapidly approaching. 
for us it could not be particularly festive, but we should have to try to make as much of it as circumstances would permit. We ought, therefore, to reach our depot that evening, so as to keep Christmas with a dish of porridge. The night before Christmas Eve we slaughtered Svartflecken. There was no mourning on this occasion. Svartflecken was one of Hassel's dogs, and had always been a reprobate. I found the following in my diary, written the same evening. Slaughtered Svartflecken this evening. He would not do any more, though there was not much wrong with his looks. Bad character. If a man, he would have ended in penal servitude. He was comparatively fat, and was consumed with evident satisfaction. Christmas Eve came. The weather was rather changeable, now overcast, now clear, when we set out at 8 p.m. the night before. We had not far to go before reaching our depot. At twelve midnight we arrived there in the most glorious weather, calm and warm. Now we had the whole of Christmas Eve before us, and could enjoy it at our ease. Our depot was at once taken down and divided between the two sledges. All crumbs of biscuit were carefully collected by Visting, the cook for the day, and put into a bag. This was taken into the tent and vigorously beaten and kneaded. The result was pulverised biscuit. With this product and a sausage of dried milk, Visting succeeded in making a capital dish of Christmas porridge. I doubt whether anyone at home enjoyed his Christmas dinner so much as we did that morning in the tent. One of Bialand's cigars to follow brought a festival spirit over the whole camp. Another thing we had to rejoice about that day was that we had again reached the summit of the plateau, and after two or three more days' march would begin to go downhill, finally reaching the barrier and our old haunts. Our daily march had hitherto been interrupted by one or two halts. We stopped to rest both the dogs and ourselves. On Christmas Eve we instituted a new order of things, and did the whole distance, fifteen geographical miles, without a stop. We liked this arrangement best, after all, and it seemed as if the dogs did the same. As a rule it was hard to begin the march again after the rest. One got rather stiff, lazy too, perhaps, and had to become supple again. On the 26th we passed 88 degrees south, going well. The surface appeared to have been exposed to powerful sunshine since we left it, as it had become quite polished. Going over these polished levels was like crossing smooth ice, but with the important difference that here the dogs had a good foothold. This time we sighted high land even in 88 degrees, and it had great surprises in store for us. It was clear that this was the same mighty range running to the southeast as we had seen before, but this time it stretched considerably farther to the south. The weather was radiantly clear, and we could see by the land that the range of vision was very great. Summit after summit the range extended to the southeast, until it gradually disappeared, but to judge from the atmosphere it was continued beyond our range of vision in the same direction. That this chain traverses the Antarctic continent I therefore consider beyond a doubt. Here we had a very good example of how deceptive the atmosphere is in these regions. On a day that appeared perfectly clear, we had lost sight of the mountains in 87 degrees, and now we saw them as far as the eye could reach in 88 degrees. That we were astonished is a mild expression. We looked and looked, entirely unable to recognise our position. Little did we guess that the huge mountain mass that stood up so high and clear on the horizon was Mount Thorvald Nilsen. 
how utterly different it had looked in the misty air when we said good-bye to it. It is amusing to read my diary of this time, and see how persistently we took the bearings of land every day, and thought it was new. We did not recognise that vast mountain until Mount Helmer Hansen began to stick up out of the plain. On December the 28th we left the summit of the plateau and began the descent. Although the incline was not perceptible to the naked eye, its effect could easily be seen in the dogs. Visting now used a sail on his sledge, and was thus able to keep up with Hansen. If anyone had seen the procession that came marching over the plateau at that time, he would hardly have thought we had been out for seventy days at a stretch, for we came at a swinging pace. We always had the wind at our backs, with sunshine and warmth the whole time. There was never a thought of using the whip now. The dogs were bursting with health, and tugged at their harness to get away. It was a hard time for our worthy forerunner, as he often had to spurt as much as he could to keep clear of Hansen's dogs. Visting in full sail, with his dogs howling for joy, came close behind. Hassel had his work cut out to follow, and indeed I had the same. The surface was absolutely polished, and for long stretches at a time we could push ourselves along with our sticks. The dogs were completely changed since we had left the pole. Strange as it may sound, it is nevertheless true that they were putting on flesh day by day, and getting quite fat. I believe it must have been feeding them on fresh meat and pemmican together that did this. We were able again to increase our ration of pemmican from December the 28th. The daily ration was one pound, 450 grams per man, and we could not manage more. At least, I think not. On December the 29th we went downhill more and more, and it was indeed tough work being a ski-runner. The drivers stood so jauntily by the side of their sledges, letting themselves be carried over the plain at a phenomenal pace. The surface consisted of sastrugi, alternating with smooth stretches like ice. Heaven help me how we ski-runners had to struggle to keep up. It was all very well for Bjarland, he had flown faster on even worse ground, but for Hassel and me it was different. I saw Hassel put out now an arm, now a leg, and make the most desperate efforts to keep on his feet. Fortunately I could not see myself. If I had been able to, I am sure I should have been in fits of laughter. Early that day Mount Helmer Hansen appeared. The ground now went in great undulations, a thing we had not noticed in the mist when we were going south. So high were these undulations that they suddenly hid the view from us. The first we saw of Mount Hansen was from the top of one of these big waves. It then looked like the top of a pressure hummock that was just sticking up above the surface. At first we did not understand at all what it was. It was not till the next day that we really grasped it, when the pointed blocks of ice covering the top of the mountain came into view. As I have said, it was only then that we made sure of being on the right course, all the rest of the land that we saw was so entirely strange to us. We recognised absolutely nothing. On the 30th we passed 87 degrees south, and were thus rapidly nearing the Devil's Ballroom and Glacier. The next day was brilliantly fine, temperature minus 2.2 degrees Fahrenheit, with a good breeze right aft. To our great joy we got sight of the land around the butcher's shop. It was still a long way off, of course, but was miraged up in the warm, sunny air. We were extraordinarily lucky on our homeward trip. We escaped the Devil's Ballroom altogether. 
On January the 1st we ought, according to our reckoning, to reach the Devil's Glacier, and this held good. We could see it at a great distance. Huge hummocks and ice waves towered into the sky. But what astonished us was that between these disturbances and on the far side of them, we seemed to see an even, unbroken plain, entirely unaffected by the broken surface. Mounts Hassel, Wisting and Bjarland lay as we had left them. They were easy to recognise when we came a little nearer to them. Now Mount Helmer Hansen again towered high into the air. It flashed and sparkled like diamonds as it lay bathed in the rays of the morning sun. We assumed that we had come nearer to this range than when we were going south, and that this was the reason of our finding the ground so changed. When we were going south, it certainly looked impassable between us and the mountains, but who could tell? Perhaps, in the middle of all the broken ground that we then saw, there was a good even stretch, and that we had now been lucky enough to stumble upon it. But it was once more the atmosphere that deceived us, as we found out on the following day, for instead of being nearer the range, we had come farther out from it, and this was the reason of our only getting a little strip of this undesirable glacier. We had our camp that evening in the middle of a big, filled-up crevasse. We were a trifle anxious as to what kind of surface we should find farther on. That these few hummocks and old crevasses were all the glacier had to offer us this time was more than we dared to hope. But the second came, and brought, thank God, no disappointment. With incredible luck we had slipped past all those ugly and dangerous places, and now, before we knew where we were, we found ourselves safe and sound on the plain below the glacier. The weather was not first-rate when we started at seven in the evening. It was fairly thick, and we could only just distinguish the top of Mount Bjarland. This was bad, as we were now in the neighbourhood of our depot, and would have liked clear weather to find out where it lay. But instead of clearing, as we hoped, it grew thicker and thicker, and when we had gone about six and three-quarter miles, it was so bad that we thought it best to stop and wait for a while. We had all the time been going on the erroneous assumption that we had come too far to the east, that is, too near the mountains, and under the circumstances, in the short gleams that had come from time to time, we had not been able to recognise the ground below the glacier. According to our idea, we were on the east of the depot. The bearings, which had been taken in thick air, and were now to guide us in this heavy mist, gave no result whatever. There was no depot to be seen. We had just swallowed the grateful warm pemmican when the sun suddenly showed itself. I don't think the camp was ever broken and the sledges packed in such a short time. From the moment we jumped out of our bags till the sledges were ready, it only took us fifteen minutes, which is incredibly quick. What on earth is that shining over there through the fog? The question came from one of the lads. The mist had divided and was rolling away on both sides. In the western bank something big and white peeped through, along the ridge running north and south. Hurrah! It's Helland Hansen. Can't possibly be anything else. Our only landmark on the west. We all shouted with joy on meeting this old acquaintance. But in the direction of the depot the fog hung thick. We held a brief consultation, and agreed to let it go, to steer for the butchers, and put on the pace. We had food enough, anyhow. No sooner said than done, and we started off. It rapidly cleared, and then, on our way towards Helland Hansen, we found that we had come 
not too far to the east, but too far to the west. But to turn round and begin to search for our depot was not to our liking. Below Mount Helen Hansen we came up on a fairly high ridge. We had now gone our fixed distance, and so halted. Behind us, in the brightest, clearest weather, lay the glacier, as we had seen it for the first time on our way to the south, break after break, crevasse after crevasse. But in among all this nastiness there ran a white, unbroken line, the very path we had stood and looked at a few weeks back. And directly below that white stripe we knew, as sure as anything could be, that our depot lay. We stood there expressing our annoyance rather forcibly at the depot having escaped us so easily, and talking of how jolly it would have been to have picked up all our depots from the plain we had strewed them over. Dead tired as I felt that evening, I had not the least desire to go back the fifteen miles that separated us from it. If anybody would like to make the trip, he shall have many thanks. They all wanted to make it, all as one man. There was no lack of volunteers in that company. I chose Hansen and Bjarland. They took nearly everything off the sledge, and went away with it empty. It was then five in the morning. At three in the afternoon they came back to the tent, Bjarland running in front, Hansen driving the sledge. That was a notable feat, both for men and dogs. Hansen, Bjarland, and that team had covered about fifty miles that day, at an average rate of three to three and a half miles an hour. They had found the depot without much search. Their greatest difficulty had been in the undulating surface, for long stretches at a time they were in the hollows between the waves, which shut in their view entirely. Ridge succeeded ridge endlessly. We had taken care that everything was ready for their return. Above all, great quantities of water. Water, water, was the first thing, and generally the last, that was in request. When their thirst was a little quenched, great interest was shown in the pemmican. While these two were being well looked after, the depot they had brought in was divided between the two sledges, and in a short time all was ready for our departure. Meanwhile the weather had been getting finer and finer, and before us lay the mountains, sharp and clear. We thought we recognised Fritjof Nansen and Don Pedro Christofferson, and took the bearings of them in case the fog should return. With most of us the ideas of day and night began to get rather mixed, Six o'clock, someone would answer, when asked the time. Yes, in the morning, remarks the other. No, what are you talking about, answers the first one again. It's evening, of course. The date was hopeless. It was a good thing if we remembered the year. Only when writing in our diaries and observation books did we come across such things as dates. While at work we had not the remotest idea of them. Splendid weather it was when we turned out on the morning of January the 3rd. We had now agreed to go as it suited us, and take no notice of day or night. For some time past we had all been sick of the long hours of rest, and wanted to break them up at any price. As I have said, the weather could not have been finer, brilliantly clear and a dead calm. The temperature of minus 2.2 degrees Fahrenheit felt altogether like summer in this bright, still air. Before we began our march, all unnecessary clothes were taken off and put on the sledges. It almost looked as if everything would be considered superfluous, and the costume in which we finally started would no doubt have been regarded as somewhat unseemly in our latitudes. 
we smiled and congratulated ourselves that at present no ladies had reached the Antarctic regions, or they might have objected to our extremely comfortable and serviceable costume. The high land now stood out still more sharply. It was very interesting to see in these conditions the country we had gone through on the southward trip in the thickest blizzard. We had then been going along the foot of this immense mountain chain, without a suspicion of how near we were to it, or how colossal it was. The ground was fortunately quite undisturbed in this part. I say fortunately, as heaven knows what would have happened to us if we had been obliged to cross a crevassed surface in such weather as we then had. Perhaps we should have managed it. Perhaps not. The journey before us was a stiff one, as the butchers lay 2,680 feet higher than the place where we were. We had been expecting to stumble upon one of our beacons before long, but this did not happen until we had gone twelve and a half miles. Then one of them suddenly came in sight, and was greeted with joy. We knew well enough that we were on the right track, but an old acquaintance like this was very welcome all the same. The sun had evidently been at work up here while we were in the south, as some of the beacons were quite bent over, and great icicles told us clearly enough how powerful the sunshine had been. After a march of about twenty-five miles, we halted at the beacon we had built right under the hill, where we had been forced to stop by thick weather on November the 25th. January the 4th was one of the days to which we looked forward with anxiety, as we were then due at our depot at the butcher's, and had to find it. This depot, which consisted of the finest fresh dog's flesh, was of immense importance to us. Not only had our animals got into the way of preferring this food to pemmican, but what was of still greater importance, it had an extremely good effect on the dog's state of health. No doubt our pemmican was good enough, indeed it could not have been better, but a variation of diet is a great consideration, and seems, according to my experience, to mean even more to the dogs than to the men on a long journey like this. On former occasions I have seen dogs refuse pemmican, presumably because they were tired of it, having no variety, and the result was that the dogs grew thin and weak, although we had food enough. The pemmican I am referring to on that occasion was made for human use, so that their distaste cannot have been due to the quality. It was 1.15am when we set out. We had not had a long sleep, but it was very important to avail ourselves of this fine clear weather while it lasted. We knew by experience that up here in the neighbourhood of the butchers the weather was not to be depended upon. From the outward journey we knew that the distance from the beacon where our camp was to the depot at the butchers was thirteen and a half miles. We had not put up more than two beacons on this stretch, but the ground was of such a nature that we thought we could not go wrong. That it was not so easy to find the way, in spite of the beacons, we were soon to discover. In the fine, clear weather, and with Hansen's sharp eyes, we picked up both our beacons. Meanwhile we were astonished at the appearance of the mountains. As I have already mentioned, we thought the weather was perfectly clear when we reached the butchers for the first time on November the 20th. I then took a bearing from the tent of the way we had come up on the plateau between the mountains, and carefully recorded it. After passing our last beacon, when we were beginning to approach the butchers, as we reckoned, we were greatly surprised at the aspect of our surroundings. Last time, on November the 20th, we had seen mountains on the west and north, but a long way off. Now the whole of that part of the horizon seemed to be filled with colossal mountain masses, which were right over us. 
What in the world was the meaning of this? Was it witchcraft? I'm sure I began to think so for a moment. I would readily have taken my most solemn oath that I had never seen that landscape before in my life. We had now gone the full distance, and according to the beacons we had passed, we ought to be on the spot. This was very strange. In the direction in which I had taken the bearing of our ascent, we now only saw the side of a perfectly unknown mountain sticking up from the plain. There could be absolutely no way down in that precipitous wall. Only on the northwest did the ground give the impression of allowing a descent. There a natural depression seemed to be formed, running down towards the barrier, which we could see far, far away. We halted and discussed the situation. Hello, Hansen suddenly exclaimed. "'Somebody has been here before?' "'Yes,' broke in Visting. "'I'm hanged if that isn't my broken ski that I stuck up by the depot.' So it was Visting's broken ski that brought us out of this unpleasant situation. It was a good thing he put it there, very thoughtful in any case. I now examined the place with the glasses, and by the side of a snow-mound, which proved to be our depot, but might easily have escaped our notice, we could see the ski sticking up out of the snow. We cheerfully set our course for the spot, but did not reach it until we had gone three miles. There was rejoicing in our little band when we arrived, and saw that what we had considered the most important point of our homeward journey had been reached. It was not so much for the sake of the food it contained that we considered it so necessary to find this spot, as for discovering the way down to the barrier again. And now that we stood there, we recognised this necessity more than ever. For although we now knew from our bearings exactly where the descent lay, we could see nothing of it at all. The plateau there seemed to go right up to the mountain, without any opening towards the lower ground beyond, and yet the compass told us that such an opening must exist, and would take us down. The mountain on which we had thus walked all day on the outward journey, without knowing anything of it, was Mount Fritjof Nansen. Yes, the difference in the light made a surprising alteration in the appearance of things. End of section 27